In a sense, yes, we have to look at all of the problems all at once. There was a woman uh, wearing a hat yesterday with plastic drinking straws poking out in all directions with a sign, the last straw. And I said, good on you. And yet plastic straws in the ocean is in many ways a trivial problem compared to the loss of climate stability, which is killing people in the Bahamas, in Houston, in Mozambique, The great flood of refugees is in large part because of the climate crisis, and it will only get worse. We are seeing the beginnings of the flood of what will be billions of climate refugees Mm -hmm. if we don't address this problem. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, If others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you. Hear their struggles. And then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. I recorded the second conversation with Hunter Lovins the day after the September 20th, 2019 climate marches. I hope they happen in your city. You'll hear both of us share our experiences of how they went and what happened. And I wanted to hear her and bring you the perspective of someone who has been at this longer and knew more people than I had, and probably most people out there. So wait until you hear her share all the people she knew there, as well as her perspective of seeing a different generation pick up what no one has or very few have for so long. From our last conversation, you heard me struggle with what I thought I heard of her saying that things can work out, so rest easy. We resolved that. I brought that up toward the end, so enjoy listening through and hear Hunter talk about was she saying rest easy. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Hunter Lovins. How are you doing? Excellent. How are you? I'm very good. And we we were just starting before, and there were some things I wanted to follow up last time about asking about business and climate and change and how how things are changing and huge industries changing. And then yesterday was a climate march, uh, September 20th. So today, for the record, is September 21st. And it was literally like in front of this building. And and we're on Lower Broadway, and it went right past here down to Battery Park. And when I was walking past here, I was thinking, Hunter's been through things like this before. She knows she's been at this more than I have. She knows more people than I have. As she said before, what did you say? If I were any damn good, I'd have solved these problems long ago. So, so you've been working at it. And I'm, I'm, I wonder, do you have a particular direction of talking about, I, I'd love to hear the, your thoughts on, is this, a lot of people, I think, feel like this is a major change, that people are acting on the environment acting on, I guess, climate in particular? Or has this been something that's been going on for a long time, and if we were any good at this, it would have changed by now? Yes to both of those. It has been going on for a long time. Yesterday, obviously, a lot of us were (laughs) standing around for a lot of the time while we got ready to walk and then down at Battery Park after we got there. 
talking about when did we get involved with all of this and how long have we been doing this, particularly surrounded by a lot of the young people for whom this is their first ever march, which is exciting. And a journalist I was with, one of, one of the kids was uh, saying how, in a sense, uh, quoting Greta Thunberg, that uh, nobody has acted on this. And the, the journalist said, that's not true. This woman has been working on this since the early 80s. I said, well, actually, since 75. And the, the kid's look was sort of, then why haven't you fixed it? Mm-hmm. And I said, if any of us were any damn good, we would have solved this problem. We knew it was a problem. My first book on climate was 1981, Least Cost Energy, Solving the CO2 Problem. We knew then that energy efficiency, renewable energy, would cut emissions and essentially, back then, had we done it, solved the CO2 problem. We knew through the 80s, through the 90s, into the aughts, and now, what are we in the teens? It's the same goddamn thing we have known. We've known that there's a problem. We have watched the problem get worse. And we simply haven't done what we should have done back in the back in the seventies, back in the sixties. And the scientists have known that this was a potential problem since what the eighteen hundreds, late eighteen hundreds. And that's just climate. I mean, there's also plastic in the ocean. There's deforestation. Well, the environmental there's, crisis. Yeah, yeah we've. Uh, In many ways, in the United States, the consciousness rose with Rachel Carson, with David Brower in the 60s, Silent Spring, Dave saving the Grand Canyon by taking a full-page ad out in the New York Times. Bureau of Reclamation said, but if we dam and flood the Grand Canyon, you can boat up to the edges and get a better view of them. So Dave took a full-page ad out saying, would you flood the Sistine Chapel to get a closer look at the ceiling? Mm -hmm. Saved the Grand Canyon, lost Sierra Club its tax status, got fired for his troubles, and created Friends of the Earth. And we've known about all of these problems all along, and people have simply not yet been willing to act. So what, what I try to work on is what will get people interested in acting And my thesis has been, when I can show you that we can solve this problem at a profit, you will simply make more money. You'll have a higher quality of life. Oh, and we'll solve the problem. Is climate change a hoax? I don't care. If it's a hoax, we'll make a lot of money. If it's real, we'll make a lot of money. And we're on our way to solving the problem. That thesis has, I think, driven the creation of the solutions that we now have to hand, where this summer... In early June, General Electric out in California walked away from a perfectly functioning natural gas plant, has 20 years of useful life left. They shut it down and said, we can't compete with solar. A couple weeks after that, Los Angeles Department of Water and Power initiated a deal to do solar plus storage at, they said, 2.9 cents a kilowatt hour. Last week, they closed the deal. It's now a contract. Uh, A couple weeks after that, General Electric announced a deal with BlackRock, the big financial house, to do distributed solar and storage. What we've been doing before is big utility scale, which we've known is pretty cheap. Now they're getting into putting solar panels on everybody's rooftop and batteries in your garage. 
this will, if it goes far enough, destroy the electric utilities business model mm-hmm. and provide genuine homeland security to everyone in mm-hmm. terms of where you get your energy. Then Portugal won what I call the Walmart Award for Everyday Low Prices at 1.6 cents a kilowatt hour. This is almost free power. Mm-hmm. And it is now happening worldwide. Solar renewables are cheaper essentially everywhere on the planet than fossil energy. And as a result, you saw Glencore, the big coal company, this summer go bankrupt. And utility companies are canceling coal plants. As I said, GE canceled a gas plant. We are right at this moment of transition where the technology is here, it's more cost-effective, and so you have companies committing to go 100% renewably powered. I spent part of yesterday afternoon with Paul Pullman, who had been the visionary leader for Unilever when they committed to go 100% renewably powered. Uh, Google just announced massive increases in use of renewable energy. Why are they doing this? This is not out of the goodness of their hearts, although in the case of Pullman, he also understands the moral implications. It's because it's cheaper, and it will solve half the climate crisis at a profit. You then solve the other half with regenerative agriculture, which also this summer has just started to come up. You hear talk about regenerative agriculture everywhere now, where before only a tiny handful of us had ever heard the the term. And so to me, having all the kids in the street, you know, some people say, where have they been? It's like, never mind. They're here. Good on them. Let's go. If the consciousness is here, the technology is here. Don't argue about whose fault it is. Let's just solve this problem. Now, so what you're saying, it gives me a lot of hope. And but I'm also I also feel like there are areas that it doesn't touch on. I mean, flying comes plastic to mind. Plastic in the or ocean. Plastic in the ocean. And well, one thing at a time. Uh, climate is the existential threat, mm-hmm. and loss of biodiversity, as uh, Bob Watson said of the recent Ibis report, that loss of biodiversity is as serious a problem for humankind as the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. We lose things like bees, pollinators, and agriculture becomes pretty difficult to maintain. Mm -hmm. So we need to pay attention certainly to those two problems. And in many ways, they're interrelated. Much of the loss of biodiversity has become because of the climate crisis. As we lose forests, as we lose grasslands, the world's largest carbon sinks beside the ocean, then uh, you emit more carbon and it worsens the problem. So, you know, the burning this summer of the Amazon by Bolsonaro saying, yeah, go get it. Uh, The Amazon is the world's lungs. It's also stored carbon. So in a sense, yes, we have to look at all of the problems all at once. There was a woman uh, wearing a hat yesterday with uh, plastic drinking straws poking out in all directions with a sign, the last straw. And I said, good on you. And yet, plastic straws in the ocean is in many ways a trivial problem compared to the loss of climate stability, which is killing people in the Bahamas, in Houston, in Mozambique, 
The great flood of refugees is in large part because of the climate crisis, and it will only get worse. We are seeing the beginnings of the flood of what will be billions of climate refugees Mm -hmm. if we don't address this problem. Yeah, I didn't mean to ask it in a devil's advocate way. What I meant was that, okay, in in a business context, in some cases they'll make um, decisions based on, on moral reasons, but generally if it's cheaper, they're going to go with the cheaper and people who worked long and hard and found ways that are cheaper than coal and gas and so forth. And something you also said last time, I'll, I'll try to say it as best I could, is that when you switch, it's a better lifestyle to have more nature, to, to take a pause. And, 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 and in my experience, this is weird correlation. The mathematician in me wants to find a, a, a proof here. Well, I don't have one, but there seems to be a very strong correlation with, with, with things that are closer to wild nature and uh, building community and that don't pollute. And on the other hand, things that pollute and tend to separate people and tend to make us less happy. In my experience, as I've, I grew up eating Doritos, I grew up eating a lot of processed food and packaged and, and I flew around all the time and I've made all these switches and my life is better and better and better. And yeah, that's the happier. When, when you begin to simplify your life, have fewer things that you feel attachment to, eat healthier, have a healthier lifestyle, spend more time in nature rather than accessing entertainment diversion that is costly and polluting, Mm -hmm. you're happier. But that should be a personal choice. I think it's a choice that almost everybody would make, but it seems like very few are making it. But those who do are glad they did. Yes, those who do tend to be very glad that they do. Remember, we have been educated by the advertising industry, which is Mm -hmm. the world's most effective educational institution, into believing... I'm sorry. I love how you say things like that. It's very meaningful. (laughs) And and it just came... Yeah, yeah. And I couldn't help but comment on the meaning behind it. So We have been conditioned to believe that we are inadequate unless we possess this thing, the latest iPhone. I mean, my iPhone works perfectly well, thank you. The latest color of car. Uh, I talked to somebody the other day who literally had bought a new car because they didn't like the color of the car they were driving. Mm. I wish I had money to throw away like that. And... You still wouldn't, though. Not that way. I uh, I'd, I'd put it into the advocacy work that I do. So this is cultural. I see there's a cultural shift to happen. I'd really like to help make it happen. Well, somebody once said living well is the best revenge. Mm-hmm. Living well is the best teacher for those who are looking for happiness Telling them they will be happier, in my experience, doesn't get them to shift. But they're observing you being happier will get them to inquire, why are you happy? Mm-hmm. I learned this from the Afghans when I was working in Afghanistan doing economic development in 2003, 4, 5, 6, that my Afghan friends had a depth of contentment, of satisfaction, of connection, of family, of belonging, of sense of purpose, that most of the people that I interacted with in the West had never known. And people 
you know, suicide rates are skyrocketing. Teen suicide. Here, yes, in the West. Uh-huh. Teen suicide is going up in the West. In Colorado, which is a beautiful place, teen suicide is double the national rate. They're not quite sure why. Mm-hmm. And my Afghan friends were happy with nothing, no things. Mm-hmm. They didn't have any of the distractions and and yet when they would see any of Western media, they they would say, oh, people live so well in the West. And I said, but a hell of a lot of people in the West are miserable and you guys are happy. Mm-hmm. And, in their, and they had had at that point 25 years of war. No, no one I spoke with had not lost a family member or a friend to the war. And, and yet they had this sense of being a part of a culture. They knew who they were. And it, people say that is a, almost a reverse colonialism. Um, but what it did was teach me how to be happy. I learned more from the Afghans than any value I may have brought to them. Yeah, this is when, when people talk about how India, China, Africa, they're going to have these huge, growing, their populations are going to grow. How are we going to get them to be able to live like us? I'm like, how can we live? Like, I don't see, like, I look at, I mean, you talked about suicide and, and there's opiates and there's addictions and there's all these things. I'm like, I don't, I don't think we're getting what people think that we're getting here. And there's part of me that says, yeah, just living well is the best revenge, but translate it to this, like uh, living well yeah, is the is best influence. Living well, I think it is living in happiness, in in authentic happiness, and letting people see that. It's hard to argue with that. I'm not, not that I'm not that I'm looking to argue. And there's also in me a feeling of like I, I feel like for a long time people had, didn't put that much work into developing, say, solar, and now it's super cheap. And I feel like people haven't put much effort into why do the people when they watch in Afghanistan when they watch American TV? I think our advertising is really. Generations ago, hundreds of years ago, we would have teams of engineers to develop material, develop like machines that would drive you across the country. And, you know, now we have. Well, decades ago, decades ago. Well, I mean, since the Industrial Revolution, it's like labor saving. And now I feel like we instead of engineers to make mechanical and electronic things, we have psychologists to figure out, like, put that little red dot by the thing in Facebook. And we just lost half our listeners because I said red dot. And they're like, oh, let me check my Facebook messages. (laughs) And you know, right, we have teams of people figuring out like how can we get them to like crave? How can we get them to 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 want this thing? Press this button, you know, like buy th- these fries or whatever. And they're really effective at it. They're very effective at it. It is the ability to make people feel inadequate if they don't have it. Yeah. And when you find, to me, when I find that flow. That being in the moment, that purpose of doing, I really don't care what's on Facebook. I, mm-hmm. My staff tries to remind me to use Facebook, to post things to Facebook, to talk about the work that I'm doing. And I forget, and then three weeks will go by and I haven't looked at Facebook mm-hmm. or Instagram or Twitter. I've been, God damn, I was supposed <laughs> to, having said that, I was supposed to Instagram yesterday from the march and I didn't. Mm-hmm. I spend the time being with the people that yeah, I'm with. Yeah. And the, for me, the march was outstanding. I, mean, I ran into John Fullerton, who is this great. You mentioned him, yeah, many times. Regenerative economics, was walking with Vincent Stanley, who's one of the 
creators of Patagonia, just literally on the street, ran into Mark Campanelli, founder of Carbon Tracker, who will come and talk to my class tonight. Uh, Ellen Dorsey, who is the creator of the Divest movement, and then was uh, joined up with Andrew Winston, author of Big Pivot, and Eben Goodstein is the founder of the BARD program where I teach. Our students then uh, was standing with Andrew and the people from the B team, and they said, oh, Paul's going to be here shortly. And mm -hmm. I said, Pullman? Mm -hmm. And they said, yeah, and there came Paul walking in, and so I hung out with, uh, with Paul Pullman, who's truly one of my heroes, has left as the CEO at Unilever and is now, has now created a whole new organization called Imagine mm -hmm. to try to help companies implement the sustainable development goals. And it's like when you can be with, with real people, why on yeah. earth would you be on Facebook? Yeah, and that's what it's... So on the one hand, I want to live well and, and be an example. I hope that I'm doing that. I suppose the listeners are a self-selecting group. And there's also, I think, I think like a lot of people are sucked into Facebook. And when I say sucked into Facebook... To me, it's a tool that I use badly mm -hmm. to try to communicate the, what I'm thinking about. And I don't know, I've got however many followers it is where you have to start deleting people if you're going to add anybody else. Uh -huh. And so I guess people enjoy it, but um, that's all it is, is it's a tool. Well, I'm also saying it as like a lifestyle because I think it's designed, I was reading someone, I mean, it's designed so that if you go to, a lot of people think, I'm just going to check my message really quick. And three hours later, they're still on. And they, that's not like an accident. No, and, no, it's not. They, and likewise, they're very good at that. Yeah. And, and I don't know what, um, when I walk in, if I walk near McDonald's and I smell, it's a very unpleasant smell to me. But a lot of people, it's like, oh, fries, I got to get some fries. Right. And then they, it, like, it, that sucks them in too. And we've created all these industries that are really good at that. And what I call want more as opposed to taste good, like an apple. Well, if I bite into, and I guess I started, if I bite into an apple, I don't know about you, but I feel like, oh, that tastes good. I want more. As I keep eating more, I rarely have two apples. I don't think I've ever had three apples in a day. They still taste good. I did that once. I was picking apples and uh -huh. I could eat as many as I wanted. And, and you did. <laughs> I have not done that since. Yeah, see, okay. So the want more goes away. <laughs> yeah. But if I have potato chips, it tastes good. I want more. But actually, after a few after a few of them, it doesn't taste good. At least to me, they don't taste good anymore. But I still want more, and I feel like we engineer. They taste good to me, but well, and I still don't eat that many. Or if I do, um, if I just ran in the park and I've sweated a lot and I drink some water, I drink a certain amount. But if I put a little sugar in the water, I'll drink a lot more. Interesting. I've never tried putting sugar in water. I think in cases where people get dehydrated, it's very useful because it'll get people to drink more. But it also sells a lot of Gatorade and Coca-Cola and things like that. And that's the want more. I mean, the sugar is part of the want more. And I feel like what's happened, what you've talked about happening in industry, in energy, I feel like that kind of transformation, I'd love to see happen. I'd love to be a part of make happen in, I guess, advertising, but in, in just a, a cultural shift. toward. Well, it is actually shifting in advertising. My friend Freya Williams, who runs Futera, which is a, an, an empowerment marketing company, does brilliant advertising. She was at Edelman and before that at Ogilvy. She, she knows how to do the old-style advertising, but only works with clients that are transforming the world. Wrote a brilliant book called Green Giants on the next billion-dollar companies and 
what it is that makes them capable of becoming that. Everything from having an iconic leader, iconoclastic leader, to uh, having a purpose, to uh, walking the talk. And Jonah Sachs, Free Range Studios, did the story of stuff, mm-hmm. has a really good book out called Winning the Story Wars, where he walks through what market, inadequacy marketing was and what empowerment marketing is and why those who tell and live the best stories will rule the future. So the best people in advertising are shifting and are helping people to think more consciously about the things that they purchase and turn more to experience and and less to uh, consumption. So again, I think that we are in the midst of the most profound transformation perhaps humankind will ever go through because the way we've been doing it isn't working. Mm -hmm. We are losing life on the planet. The IBIS report said more than a million species are at risk of extinction. And of course, one of those is us. Yeah, people talk, every time someone says invasive species, I always think humans. I, I don't say it's in a good way or bad way. I mean, we, we are behaving that way now. And Janine Benyus says we are part of nature. We need yeah. to stop being a type one ecosystem characterized by invasives and fast growing and aggressive species to a type three ecosystem, a rainforest, a coral reef. We have it in us to learn. Mm-hmm. Will we do it in time? Well, that's the testable hypothesis. And that's why it's so thrilling. Uh, We get one test. (laughs) Yeah, they estimate uh, 4 million people around the world were in the streets yesterday. Mm -hmm. That's getting on for that tipping point number. Yeah, that you don't have to shift everyone before it the change happens or uh, widespread change happens. Widespread change is, is happening. And I always thought, that I would die before I saw it. Saw. The the transformation. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing it. And I'm still more or less alive. (laughs) Today feeling a little bit less. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. Oh, one other question from last time. So you talked about um, cars. Like, we may have a lot fewer cars. Yeah, well, it depends. I mean, all of these potentials in the future turn on our choices. Yeah, But if we do the cheapest thing, we will have one-sixth the number of cars. This is the work of a man named Tony Seba. That's the videos. I looked at them last time, yeah. So everyone's watched them. (laughs) And if you haven't, go watch Tony's videos. Uh, You know, Tony says, inevitably, by 2030, the world will be 100% renewable because of falling the cost of solar. And those are some of the numbers that I just cited. Fall in the cost of storage, batteries. And China recently said uh, distributed solar is cheaper than um, hooking to the Chinese coal-fired grid, mm-hmm. the electric car, and the driverless car. And with, a, with driverless cars, Tony says, it will be four to tenfold cheaper to whistle up 
the Lyft equivalent of an autonomous vehicle to go from here to there, than to pay to buy, fuel, maintain, and insure a private vehicle. So why on earth would you? And he says, by 2030, we'll need one-sixth the number of cars. Parking lots? <laughs> Take the ing off and call them parks. I don't think we can take for granted that if we have one sixth number of cars that will turn parking lots into parks, which I, I would love to like. No, you can't. It, it, it that's takes my work, point. right? Or you take, cannot take any of this for granted, mm-hmm. particularly these days where there are incumbent forces that are endeavoring to forestall this advent of a renewable world, of a healthier world, of a happier world. Because they make money on the incumbent technologies, on the oil, gas, coal, uranium, nuclear. And so you see people putting subsidies in to keep the fossil industry alive. Around the world we spend, what is it now, $5.2 trillion every year subsidizing fossil energy to make it look cheaper than it really is. Mm -hmm. Dramatically more. 10, 20 times more than any of the subsidies that are going to the renewables. Yeah, and no one's saying let's stop the subsidy. Well, a lot of people, a lot of people are saying stop subsidizing renewables. But man, there's not nearly the cry from the same people saying stop subsidizing the fossil fuels. I'm a free marketeer. Stop subsidizing everything, yeah, and, and right. solar wins overnight. Yeah, because without the subsidies, fossil just goes away. But it is going away even with the subsidies, and that's what's so exciting. It's dying now. Then you have uh, the attack on the Saudi fields, which took out half half of Saudi capacity. My first question was, who would benefit from a big run-up in oil prices? The frackers, Mm -hmm. the oil majors, the perhaps Israel, who at the time wanted to keep Netanyahu in power, Mm -hmm. the Soviets, who are heavily dependent on selling oil, and anybody but the Iranians, they, they're going to be the first one everybody looks at them. Oh, you attack the Saudis whom you hate. Yeah, they hate them, but why on earth would they attack them? Mm-hmm. So we are going to see some perverse things happen in this transition. And I think it'll be very important to keep our heads to, yeah, be, really hard. To, to be sober and measured and keep asking, in whose interest is this? And then what's the appropriate response to it? But you saw an immediate run-up in oil prices. But if oil prices go up, more people are going to go buy electric cars, Mm -hmm. which makes it even harder on the oil producers. Half of Chinese buses are now electric. All the buses in Shenzhen, China, are electric. Mm -hmm. So, again, this transition is happening despite the best efforts of the fossil companies. So I feel like if – is this oversimplifying what I'm hearing from you, that – there's the change is in some ways inevitable. The change is also benefiting. But if we simply wait for it, it's not going to like we have to also work. We, like we have, have to work at it. Yeah. And we have to be careful, fully recognize that there are vested interests in whose interest this is not who will fight very hard to preserve the status quo and don't let them do it. I'm going to leave it right there. Hunter, thank you very much. Yeah. Truly my pleasure to be with you again. My pleasure, too. Talk to you again soon. You bet.
I had to close the conversation because Hunter teaches at Bard's MBA in Sustainability, which is a new program. And she was there. She was one of the people who began this program. People were coming to show up to talk education with her, students and other administrators and professors. I'm glad that that program is there and that she's working with it and helped create it. As you know, I think that environment and working on the environment lacks leadership. And I think business schools have the potential to teach leaders. Anyway, that's about Bard and that program, which I value. I believe that we will hear from Hunter again. So stay tuned. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse. And living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.